Two years after the military staged an illegal coup in Myanmar, it continues to wage a campaign of violence and oppression to crush widespread opposition. But while it has utterly failed to stop this opposition, it is succeeding in destroying the nation and assaulting the fundamental human rights of its people. Even as they pursue a heroic campaign to save their country, many people from Myanmar have come to believe that a distracted world has forgotten them. Indonesia is deeply disappointed. The situation in Myanmar. Thailand's informal talks with Myanmar's military government have garnered widespread criticism from in and outside of Thailand for what's being perceived as a solar initiative by Thailand's caretaker government. We need further strongest possible action from the international community to immediately end the military coup, to stop oppressing the innocent people, to return the state power to the people, and to restore the democracy. Welcome to the Insight Myanmar podcast. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know that we have a lot more written and video content on our website. If you haven't visited it yet, we invite you to take a look at www.insightmyanmar.org. In addition to complete information about all of our past episodes, there's also a variety of blogs, books, and videos to check out, and you can also sign up for our regular newsletter. But for now, enjoy what follows, and remember, sharing is caring. from Bangkok. My name is Kasip Piromya. I was for 37 years uh, a career diplomat attached to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I was ambassador to many countries. After retirement from the civil service, I became a politician, a member of parliament, and before that, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Thailand about 10 years ago. At the moment, I am a full-fledged ordinary citizen of Thailand, doing many works within the context of the civil society organization pertaining to the, promo to the question of the promotion of democracy and human rights in the Southeast Asia region or within the context of the ASEAN community. Thank you. I mean, that's a, that's a very illustrious resume uh, to, to be sure. Uh, and and again, I, we really appreciate you you sharing your thoughts. So let's immediately jump into 
the the Thai context which you would be the most familiar with, I think a lot of people who are following the Myanmar conflict uh, are somewhat frustrated to see, as we have seen since the coup, that the Thai political establishment does not seem to be particularly interested in supporting a transition to to a, a democracy in Myanmar, and there seems to be very close relationships with the the Myanmar military, the Myanmar junta, um, from the the Thai side. Can you tell us a little bit about why this this situation has evolved and whether we can expect any support for a democratic transition from the Thai political establishment? I think what you have just briefly said is very true. I am in full agreement. And the reasons behind this position of the, the Thai government for the past nine years under the leadership of uh, General Prayut Chan Ocha, you know, they have taken the position of uh, trying to maintain a cordial, both personal as well as the military to military and government to government with the military junta of Myanmar who staged the coup d'etat two years ago that ended the parliamentary democratic system of Myanmar. The reason why they are quite uh, accommodative and friendly to the military junta, I think has very much to do with the background of the Thai Prime Minister, Mr. Uh, General Prayut Chan Ocha. The fact that uh, nine years ago, he staged the coup d'etat and ended the democratic government of Thailand and held the position of the prime minister of Thailand as also the head of the military junta of Thailand. And after five years, Thailand uh, did have a new constitution and uh, the constitution was uh, semi-democratic and semi-democratic. And uh, that constitution did give the, I think, the legal framework for General Prayut Chan Ocha to become the Thai Prime Minister in an elected House of Representatives. So there was a continuation of the premiership of General Prayut Chan Ocha, first as a coup leader and second as a sort of a elected Prime Minister of Thailand. So for the past nine years, Thailand did have a prime minister who came from the military background. And the Thai military establishment all along has been having a very close, friendly and cooperative relationship with the Myanmar military counterpart throughout the years for many decades. And there was also this personal relationship of man-to-man or military-to-military or generals-to-generals. That explained the reason why during the past two years after the coup d'etat in Myanmar, the Thai government under a former general has been, I think, uh, accommodative to the Myanmar uh, military establishment, ignoring more or less the five-point consensus agreed by all the ASEAN leaders together with the uh, military leader of Myanmar, Senior General Min Ong Lai. So the concern from the position of the Thai government for the past nine years under the leadership of General Prayut Chan Ocha 
is to maintain the relationship and cordiality and cooperative relationship with the Myanmar military counterpart, ignoring altogether the aspiration and the struggle for the return of democracy by the Myanmar uh, people in general or the democratic opposition to the military government in Naypyidaw, the capital city of Myanmar. And you you said that that uh, Prayut Chan-ocha transitioned from a military junta to an elected position. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I, my understanding was that there were a lot of concerns about the legitimacy of the election that put um, Chan-ocha into that uh, that prime ministership, that sort of legitimate, um, if we can say, civilian government position. Uh, is there a, a degree to which I'm speculating? Is there a degree to which there is fear and has been fear by the time establishment that genuine democracy in bordering countries could undermine the the continuation of the the status quo i i i start exactly i don't think so as i have mentioned the present constitution of thailand allows for the military involvement in politics and the continuation of the military establishment of thailand in, uh, in politics from the military government or the military regime into a sort of a semi-military and semi-democratic regime. The constitution has stipulated that uh, the, for the, for it, it gives a sort of a framework, the spirit, the letters for the continuation of General Prayut Chan Ocha from uh, prime minister inside the military context into the prime ministership inside the semi-democratic context of Thailand until I think two days ago, because now we have a new government and General Prayut Chan Ocha is no longer the prime minister of Thailand. But the Thai society in general is still calling for a full democratic entity for the kingdom of Thailand. This is a work that the Thai society as a whole will have to continue uh, to work. So what happens in Thailand indicates the Thai foreign policy posture and foreign policy activities. I don't think that uh, the what happening in what has been happening in Burma or Myanmar uh, has very much directly to do what with what is going on in, in Thailand. It is, it is what we are determines our foreign policy directions toward Myanmar and the crisis in Myanmar. I, that's, that's very interesting to, to hear. Although, as you note, there, there is now very recently a new uh, Thai government, and, and I think many of our viewers have been following the developments since the Thai election quite uh, quite closely. Uh, it's been a very, very tense situation, a very um, suspenseful situation. Um, do you feel that with this transition to a new government that the Thai foreign policy is likely to change? I, I am not hopeful, not optimistic, because the party the political party that joined the coalition, one of the parties that joined the coalition of the new Thai government is the party 
that has the backing of the former Prime Minister General Prayut Chan Ocha. So in a sense, there is a continuity of the military establishment and the military personalities in the name of General Prayut Chan Ocha in the new government. So within this coalition government, with half of the coalition government uh, represent, I think, the interests of the military establishment. I don't foresee any fundamental changes as to the fundamental policy direction of Thailand towards the situation in Myanmar. I, I don't think that would be because there is a continuation of the military involvement in the Thai political process through this political party that has the backing of General Prayut Chan Ocha. So it's a coalition of the civilian side as well as the military side of the Thai government at this point in time and for the next few years to come. So, so to clarify, you don't, uh, you don't envision, um, uh, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, whether it's Per Thai or, or Pel Thai, you don't uh, envision that party as, as trying to change uh, the direction of Thailand and try to fight the military on these issues? No, because they are in coalition with the political parties that are backed up or belong to the former generals and the military establishment. So I don't think the Per Thai party, the leading coalition partner, will have much of the saying or the influence to change the causes of the direction of Thai foreign policy uh, measures. Okay, um, that's that's a very um, unfortunate and sobering analysis, but it's very good for us to to have this insight so early on in the new government. So so we really appreciate um, hearing that. But then let's. Let's move to the broader ASEAN um, context. So you've written quite uh, extensively, you've written quite a few articles since the coup. And one of the issues that I want to focus on is your views with regards to the special envoys that ASEAN has sent to oversee um, the, the, the crisis in, in Myanmar. You have, you have written that a rotating special envoy is not viable, that ASEAN needs to have a, a permanent uh, person in this position. Can you, can you explain briefly why you feel that a rotating envoy is a I bad idea? The yes. rotating envoys was agreed by the ASEAN leaders, I think, at their meeting in April uh, two years ago, you know, in the years uh, 2022. And it has proven that this rotating ASEAN Special Envoy for the Myanmar crisis has not produced any positive result because the Special Envoy was uh, selected by which country is in the chair of ASEAN. And uh, two years ago, it was Cambodia. And then, uh, no, two years ago, it was Brunei. Then last year, it was uh, Cambodia. And this year it is Indonesia. And when whichever country or whichever president or prime minister of that particular country that chairs the ASEAN chairmanship, you know, uh, select or pick up one of his ministers or senior officials and so on to be the ASEAN special envoy. And each of the special envoys so far has not been well versed with the uh, Myanmar uh, political setup and 
happenings and so on. And uh, he has to work under the instruction of the chairman, but not necessarily under the collective decision and mandate of the ASEAN foreign minister or the ASEAN leaders, whether the Sultan of Brunei, the president of Indonesia, and the various prime minister of the ASEAN member states. So it is a sort of a short-term work, uh, have, uh, having a duration of, uh, of about one year per ASEAN chairman. So I have come together with some of my friends in the civil society circle that it would be better if ASEAN were to appoint a sort of a, a, a permanent uh, special, the ASEAN special envoy for the Myanmar crisis. And at the same time to set up a sort of a unit attached to the ASEAN Secretariat in Jakarta, Indonesia, so that this uh, sort of a permanency could uh, facilitate more the collective ASEAN position to deal with the military establishment of Myanmar, as well as to deal with the democratic opposition of Myanmar in the name of the national unity government. And that's a permanent special envoy of ASEAN will have more time to study the, what you call, the complexity of the matters and so on. And he doesn't have to keep on thinking that in six months or eight months time, his term will end. He will have a sense of, I think, duration, longevity in uh, the attempt to carry out his responsibilities on behalf of the ASEAN as a whole. So I think that's a very, reasonable and very, very wise approach. Um, but I'd be interested in your thoughts, nevertheless, on the current uh, envoys as they've as they've come. You've you've written uh, critically about uh, Praxokon, and I think many in the international community have. Um, Cambodia's position with regards to Myanmar is, is reasonably uh, clear. Although uh, I believe both Praxokon and Hun Sen himself warned the, the military not to carry out the executions that they carried out last year. Uh, I, I think many of us found that a little bit unusual. It felt almost like a rebuke coming from a military dictatorship to another military dictatorship. Do you have any insight into why Cambodia would have would have tried to, to push the junta to not take that, that radical step? Because Subdet uh, Hun Sen, the... Uh, former Prime Minister of Thailand, because now the Prime Minister of uh, of uh, of, uh, of Cambodia is now his son, General Hun Manet. So uh, he and his son, both of them, won the elections on the 23rd of July, and even the elections uh, four years before that. But it was uh, half democracy in the sense that only Somdet Hun Sen and his son party ran in the election. And all the major opposition political parties were being nullified, you know, and a lot of their leaders were being charged with many uh, criminal uh, court cases. A lot of their leaders uh, have fled the country and uh, settled abroad, especially in Thailand, to a certain extent in Malaysia. Some even uh, lived in France for the past few years, like Somrangsi the former finance minister and the former leader of the, I think, the uh, the, the opposition uh, political uh, party. 
So the current or anything, the past and the current Cambodian government, although elected, is only uh, a, a one majority democratically elected a party because there was no opposition. So in short, Somdet Hun Sen or his son at the moment, the new uh, prime minister of Cambodia, they are authoritarian, they are autocrats. And for any autocrats to to lecture the Myanmar military establishment about democracy would be quite unbecoming. You know, it would be in contravention to the basic common sense. And Hun Sen, I think, not a democratic person. How can he lecture the military authorities of Myanmar about democracy? So he, he doesn't have the DNA or the comfort feeling to talk about democracy with the Myanmar military junta when he is also very authoritarian. You know, he's running Cambodia, a sort of a, 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 a one-party authoritarian regime. So that is the answer why Hun Sen could not do anything when he was in the chair of ASEAN uh, two years ago. And I don't think he has the inclination or the political will to talk about democracy because he is very undemocratic. But then, okay, so let's let's talk about the first uh, special envoy who was, who was appointed, uh, Dato Yusuf from, from Brunei. He's not spoken about much I think Praxocon got a lot of attention, uh, but Dato Yusuf did not. How do you appraise his performance? Because he seemed to reject meetings with the junta when the junta were not willing to allow uh, Dato Yusuf to meet with opposition leaders, not willing to allow him to meet with Aung San Suu Kyi. And he, he seemed to take a stand from an outside perspective. He seemed to take a stand to say, no, if, if we are going to engage on this matter, we have to engage on ASEAN's terms we will not allow the, the junta to dictate terms to us. Would you would you agree that he he took that stance, or do you have a differing opinion? It was not so clear, but I, I would like to explain it from from a couple of, of points. First, when he became the ASEAN special envoy, it was already going into the midst of the year twenty twenty two, and Brunei at that time only has about six months left to carry out the chairmanship of ASEAN. So the time was short for the Brunei appointed special envoy for ASEAN. And the person, the Dato, he was not well versed in the, I think, mainland Southeast Asian affairs. I don't think he knows much about the politics inside Myanmar or in Thailand. So he was very much new to the, green, uh, to the game. And second, he represents a very, uh, I think, absolute monarchy type of government because the Sultanate of Brunei is I think uh, headed by the Sultan, which is you know authoritarian in in that sense. So Brunei as a whole also like Somdet Hun Sen was not in the position to talk much about democratic principles and matters and so on. And they also would not be in the position through that special envoy to lecture the military junta in Myanmar about democracy and the need to return democracy to the people of Myanmar. So that is a failure, you know, in mm -hmm. the spirit, in the thinking, and in the circumstances surrounding uh, the, the Brunei special envoy and the context, the political context of Brunei that does not give, did not give much hopes for the democratic forces of Myanmar and for the democratic forces 
of the citizens of the ASEAN community. So you've you've spoken quite strongly and you've written quite extensively about the importance of democracy, and you've even written about um, your your view that ASEAN needs to be reformed into a collection of democratic states, and that's something that that I definitely want to touch on later in this interview. But with that in mind, uh, now that Indonesia is in the chairmanship of ASEAN, which is a democratic state, do you feel that um, Retno Marsudi is in a better position than his predecessor to to affect change in Myanmar? She was, definitely, because she represents the most democratic country inside the ASEAN community. See? But what has been the problem? I think the the reluctancy for Indonesia to push for the realization of the five-point consensus. So it has very much to do with the quality of the leadership, the guts and the determination, and the genuine firm belief in democracy. If India was to, to be itself as a democratic nation for the past several months and so on, and for the few months remaining until the end of the year 2023, Indonesia is still in the position to push for the realization of the five-point consensus and to push the Myanmar military authorities into the corner and for them to comply. Because Indonesia is in the position to rally the collective will of the rest of the ASEAN and to speak with one voice in a very firm manner to the military authorities of Myanmar. But I think sometimes things has very much to do with the character of the person, either the president of Indonesia or the foreign minister of Indonesia. I think both of them had have been uh, underperforming, not reflecting the true nature of Indonesia as a democratic entity. A big disappointment indeed. That's the first point. Second, when ASEAN was formed 50 something, 70 years ago, the reason why the five founding members of ASEAN came together because they have a common ideology, namely to, uh, to oppose the expansion of communism. And then they, together with the international community or the democratic community, uh, were victorious in defeating the communism, uh, repulsed the domino theory, and that led to the end of the Cold War, the demise of the Soviet Union, I think the prime mover of communism, and so on. See, so the, the five ASEAN member states did succeed in repulsing communism in general, and second, in getting Vietnam out of Cambodia about more than 20 years ago, and uh, return democracy to Cambodia uh, with the interim UN administration with a new constitution and with democracy, parliamentary democracy in practice. But uh, Hun Sen turned democracy into a semi-democratic uh, regime for, for Cambodia, as everyone knows. But my point is that the composition of ASEAN of the 10 without a common ideology of repulsing communism, the composition of the member state of ASEAN is very mixed indeed. There is the absolute monarchy in Brunei. There are two communist regimes in Laos and Vietnam. Then uh, Thailand, 
the Philippines, even Myanmar under Aung San Suu Kyi was struggling for democracy and trying to, but fail to push the military establishment back into their barracks and respect the civilian democratic rules. The situation in the Philippines and in Malaysia is not quite tenable, although they have elected government and so on. But there is, I think, there was rising authoritarianism in the Philippines under President Duterte. And Malaysia has now been confronting with the rise of political Islam or political Islam, which is a big problem. And only Indonesia is left to uh, can say to the world loud and clear that it is the most advanced democratic. But the 10 ASEAN member states together is a mixed lot. Absolute monarchy, communist one-party rule, uh, Cambodia one-man rule, and in Thailand, a mix of civilian and military government all along. So there is no common ideology about democracy. And when we have to talk anything about democracy in Myanmar, we cannot altogether say that the other nine of us without Myanmar in a very collective, ideological oriented manner. So everyone doesn't have the, I think the real heart, the real aspiration for democratic ASEAN. And for that reason, why I think two years ago, I did get together with some of the fellow politicians in Cambodia, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and in Thailand, and so on, to push for a complete transformation of ASEAN, that every member state of ASEAN should start the process of democratization and to turn ASEAN from a very mixed uh, political systems into a democratic system altogether. This is a dream. This is a wish that I'm still pursuing. But uh, as long as it's a, a mixture of various political regimes, I don't think ASEAN has the heart or the collective will to do anything much about the return of democracy to Myanmar. There has all along been the inherent difficulty within ASEAN or inside ASEAN. So Hun Sen was going about his way on the five-point consensus, Brunei, also, and the Thai government, the recent Thai government under General Prayut Ocha also was going about his way. Uh, and most of the time, forgetting that collective decision on the five-point consensus. The problem has to do with each of the ASEAN leaders that uh, do not put their hearts and mind and their sincerity into the five-point consensus. So the five-point consensus for the past two years has been more or less a total failure about the collective leadership and the collective will of the ASEAN community as a whole. That does me a change. There needs to be a change into a democratic direction for all of the ASEAN member states. And you, you've opened up a couple of directions of, of inquiry here, uh, which, which I really appreciate. So before we get on to the five-point consensus, let's, let's talk about your views on ASEAN because you wrote uh, two years ago a quite um, quite a bold title. Your article in Nikkei Asia, ASEAN must be transformed or replaced. Uh, a very very strong title, and you argue for the need for ASEAN to be reforged uh, with the with the premise, with the requirement that member states uh, be democratic. If this does not happen, what do you think will occur with ASEAN? 
Well, I think it's not happening, but I, I remain optimistic. I will keep on pushing for a democratic ASEAN and for democracy to take place in each of the ASEAN member states. That is my wish, my dream, and it's my DNA. I, I am a democrat. I am a liberal democrat. You know, and I said this loud and clear, and I'm inviting fellow politicians in the whole of Southeast Asia, the media, the academic circle, the civil society organization, the ASEAN citizens in general to come around and work for the transformation of ASEAN from a mixed regime, okay, into a democratic entity. And I think that is the only way out, the only answer for the future of ASEAN. And we have seen the successful story of at least two organizations in the world. First, the European Union, which is every member, 27 of them, is a democratic regime. Second, ECOWAS, the Western uh, regional organization of the African continent, which lately has come out very strongly to fight for democracy against the coup d'etat in Niger. So they are fighting for democracy because the rest of the members are democratic. And then it is something very laudable, uh, very uh, something that, uh, that everyone has to press and something that the ASEAN as a sort of fellow developing entity could learn from ECOWAS. ECOWAS has taken the lead and why not ASEAN to fight for democracy and not to remain, I think, uh, uncaring about what's going on inside Myanmar, the plight, the suffering of the ordinary uh, Myanmar people and the death of democracy in Myanmar. So I think that's a very laudable, uh, praiseworthy goal. But uh, allow me to play devil's advocate for a second. You you stated that the European Union uh, has 27 member states, all of whom are democracies. And certainly that is the principle. But if I can point to examples uh, such as Poland and mo most importantly Hungary, countries which were democratic when they joined and have started a decline into autocracy, so extreme in fact that Hungary is often no longer considered to be a democratic state by her, her European Union partners. Do you foresee any way to prevent a slide back into authoritarian regimes, even if the ASEAN member states become democracies? But let me answer it by talking about the European Union first. I did serve in Brussels as a young diplomat for 30, 40 years ago. And I, I did have the admiration, deep admiration, and even jealousy for the member state of the European Union. And if uh, Poland and Hungary were to misbehave, it's up to the rest of the member state democratic member state of the European Union to take stock and to come out more firmly to bring Hungary and Poland back to the democratic fold. It is an internal matter that I think all the member states should sit down and talk together at the EU headquarters in Brussels. They have to solve their own problem. Because if they were to allow authoritarian to slip back into the European Union, then I think that would be the beginning of the end of the European Union as a democratic entity. But I'm sure that the citizens of Europe will not allow that uh, to happen because everyone has benefited from democracy within their 
respective countries as well as within the European Union as a whole. It is a homework and it is a challenge for the European Union to redress the situation pertaining to the sliding back into authoritarianism in Hungary and Poland. And there must be some sort of a courage for the rest of the uh, of the European Union leadership to tell uh, Hungary and Poland what is black and what is white, what is authoritarianism, what is democracy, for them to solve their internal problem. But for ASEAN, we haven't gone to that level as yet. We are still a mixed lot of absolute monarchy, authoritarian, and so on. So we still have the future to to end authoritarianism of any kind inside the member state of ASEAN and to turn every member state and ASEAN as a whole into a democratic entity. There, is, there will not be a future for ASEAN as long as we are a mixed lot because we will be overlooked, forgotten. We are not on the radar screen in the, I think, the geopolitics and geoeconomics of the Asia-Pacific region or the Indo-Pacific region. We have to take stock, look at ourselves, that the way we are is not conducive to ourselves when we talk to the people and to ourselves about the centrality of the people. The centrality of the peoples means the people have to live in a democratic environment and not in any type of authoritarian regime. At the same time, ASEAN has announced to the world about ASEAN centrality in the affairs of the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific region. For the centrality to come, there must be unity, sense of purpose, common aspiration and common ideology within ASEAN for ASEAN to play that centrality role in the, in the Asia-Pacific region. And so far, we have not been able to do that because of the differences in the political setup and we have been bypassed either by the Chinese or by the United States, or we have been interfered all the time by China and by the United States. And the happenings that has been going on, you know, the getting together of China, Russia, and North Korea on one side, the getting together of the United States, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, India, and New Zealand on the other side. Then where is ASEAN? It's not here and there. And we are being hemmed in. We are being interfered. So ASEAN needs to come together and have a collective position. But some sort of collective position must be based on common aspiration, ideals, and ideologies. During the Cold War, we were anti-communism. Post-Cold War, we go for globalization, but that's not enough. We also have to move in the direction of democracy for us to be a viable entity and to have a voice and a bargaining power in the affairs of the world in general and in the affairs and happenings of the Asia-Pacific region. It is a homework for all ASEAN citizens as well as all the political leaders of the ASEAN countries and community. So I, I think the very big question that then comes, because you've mentioned, you know, the European Union would have to take steps to control Hungary and Poland. You mentioned that ASEAN needs to have a central uh, sort of thesis or, or driving force and that globalism is, uh, or globalization is the, the, the current sort of theme. Do you 
envision or can you predict any sort of mechanism that ASEAN could have or should have or might develop to control a situation like Myanmar? Because th this is the heart of the issue. ASEAN has a very strong non-intervention policy. It feels very much that the European Union wanted to integrate its countries into a single unit, whereas ASEAN wanted to protect the individuality of all of those countries first and foremost. And the consequence of that is that nobody really knows what to do about Myanmar. At least that's how I would see it. Okay. What would you envision being a mechanism that ASEAN can develop to prevent these crises and to solve these crises? Okay, if tomorrow I were to take over the handling of the Thai government, I would do one thing. I, as the prime minister or foreign minister or any uh, political party leader, would take the initiative of talking to the rest of the ASEAN member states about the reviewing the collectiveness of ASEAN. And second, to start talking about the democratic transformation of the whole of ASEAN. That's the first point. Second, if I were to be in the chair of ASEAN, I would do a lot of shuttle diplomacy. And if I were to appoint a special envoy for the ASEAN envoy for the Myanmar crisis, I would instruct the Thai appointed special envoy for ASEAN to go to all the capitals of ASEAN to try to, I think, uh, enhance the joint position and bargaining chief of ASEAN under the five-point consensus. And secondly, I would also speak on behalf of ASEAN in a very strong manner to the military authorities in Myanmar. And at the same time, I would reach out to the national unity government of Myanmar. I will do this without inhibition, without any hesitation, because I will be doing this for the common benefit of ASEAN as a whole and for democracy for ASEAN as a whole and for the return of democracy to Myanmar in particular. I, we need uh, someone, a politician inside the ASEAN to take the mantle of leadership. And I would like to recall that at the inception of ASEAN, my foreign minister at that time, Dr. Thanat Korman, was very active indeed in consulting, talking, and doing this shuttle diplomacy with fellow ASEAN member states. And from Indonesia at that time, we have very excellent foreign minister in the name of Ali Alatas. I think you might remember. I think he was a first-class foreign minister. And Malaysia has, uh, then after that, before that, we have uh, Adam Malik of Indonesia. We have Romulo of the Philippines. And then we have Ghazali. And I think several foreign ministers from Malaysia and so on. They were very proactive. And then they have the guts and the courage to speak out and to do many things. And all along, Singapore under Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew was very active behind the scene, giving ideas, recommendations, and advice to help push ASEAN forward as a cohesive entity. And for that reason, okay, we were, we were very vocal and have a lot of world attention and support in the international community, and in particular at the United Nations, especially when Vietnam occupied Cambodia. We all spoke with one voice and got the international community support, including China, 
and the Soviet Union to later tell the Vietnamese authority to get all of their armored forces out of Cambodia. And subsequently, the UN had the interim administration in Cambodia. It was a very success story of the ASEAN collectiveness, sense of togetherness, sense of purpose, and sense of leadership and initiative. And to do the daring things and not to be caught by hesitancy and lack of courage. I would have to renew that sense of purpose, starting with Thailand and through Thailand to speak to the rest of the ASEAN community. And I regretted, as I said a few minutes ago, that Indonesia under President Chukovo should have done this because he is the most, I think, he comes from the most democratic member of ASEAN, the largest economy and has a voice in the world, in the non-aligned movement, in the G20, and in the Islamic or in the Muslim world. Indonesia has been performing under par, not up to the standard that it should. But I think one of the foreign ministers or one of the ASEAN leaders at this point in time can take up the initiative and the responsibility to lead and to control the rest of the ASEAN leaders to come along and solve the Myanmar crisis. And at the same time, to start talking about the democratic transformation of ASEAN, because it would be good for ASEAN. It's standing and it influence in the activities around the world and particularly in the Asia Pacific region. So you, you talk a lot, your, your emphasis is very much on diplomacy and this sort of soft touch. But with Myanmar in particular, do you think that there is any democratic solution? Because Mina Lying and, and the junta don't seem to really be listening. They, they're running circles around ASEAN envoys, UN special envoys. They're, they're making a mockery, uh, I think, of the five-point consensus of any international rebuke or, or statement or resolution. And they're simply ignoring it and doing business with with countries who will engage in in bad faith countries like russia countries like china and and they're supporting themselves by by plundering and pillaging the country and they don't care that the international community doesn't like them and they don't care about diplomatic overtures do you feel that there is a possibility of solving this crisis through diplomacy alone definitely first the rest of ASEAN must have the guts determination the collective will and the leadership and I think senior General Min Ong Lai, the junta leader of Myanmar, only understand hard language when diplomacy has so far failed and was, I think, ignored and insulted completely by senior General Min Ong Lai. So what is needed now is hard language and uh, tangible action. We could come out with the uh, point number six, you get to add to the five-point consensus in suspension of Myanmar membership in ASEAN. We could have a collective sanctions on the Myanmar authorities and their wealth and their affiliates, which I think the a, a big Singapore bank has just about two weeks ago has come out with a pronouncement and decision to suspend all financial activities, banking activities with the Burmese uh, banking community, especially those that are backed by the military junta. 
And if a Singaporean bank can do, then the rest of the banks in the rest of the ASEAN country can do similarly. So suspension of membership, suspension of all financial banking and trade activities. Thailand could also do that by not, by paying for the gas pipeline for Myanmar into an escrow account and keep that until Myanmar return to democracy, but not to give the money for the gas to the banking account of the military junta inside Myanmar. So we can do many things. You know, at the same time, ASEAN has the dialogue relation or partnership with China, with Russia and India. Then ASEAN collectively can speak in a loud and clear voice to the Chinese, to the Russians, to the Indians, stop backing the military junta. Otherwise, the partnership will have to be sustained for the time being because their activities in, I think, supporting the military junta is undermining democracy in Myanmar and also hurting the very soul and the very physical well-being of the Myanmar people and undermining the ASEAN unity and sense of purpose. So we can do many things. If you start to sit down at the table and talk on all of this point and come out with a set of a stronger measures vis-a-vis -vis the Myanmar authority. At the same time, the ASEAN together can start having a more formal relationship with the national unity government of the democratic opposition of Myanmar. We can provide humanitarian assistance cross-border from Thailand in cooperation with the NUG and all the democratic forces to support civil society organization from the Myanmar side and on the Thai side to help the, on the humanitarian uh, crisis and so on. And ASEAN can come together and stop you know, having the ASEAN human, uh, humanitarian center dealing directly with the military junta, but to deal with the UN agencies and to deal with the Thai government as a major facilita facilitator for cross-border humanitarian assistance. And we can all together bring all of this up at the, U the current UN General Assembly for the world at large to suspend relationship with the military junta and act accordingly. Whether the American government, the American firms, European firms, all of them have to toe in line and bring the message across to the junta in Myanmar that their days are numbered and ASEAN is with the people of Myanmar and no longer being diplomatically nice to the military junta. Hard language, hard measures, hard words are needed at this point in time. And we can do it if we have the will, the political will to do it, we can do. So I definitely think that that would put a lot of pressure on the junta. The, the big question is, um, do you think that the junta's almost guaranteed ongoing relationships with China, with Russia, and potentially with with uh, other states that are quite opposed to international cooperation. Uh, we could say, for example, North Korea. We could say, for example, Iran. Both mm -hmm. countries that have been tentatively uh, connected to the junta. Do you think those connections would be sufficient to keep the junta in power and drive them to isolate themselves further from the international community, or is ASEAN and and let's say the West collectively strong enough to force the military to the negotiating table? I think half. I think if ASEAN 
and the democratic international community to coordinate more. It will be a big heavy weight against the junta and against the, I think, unbecoming activities of the Chinese and the Russian leaderships. But concurrently or simultaneously, all of us, ASEAN and the democratic international community, must reach out and render support and recognition to the NUG and all the democratic forces of Myanmar. That would be a very strong bargaining chip indeed. A message clearly to the junta that they have no more friends left inside ASEAN and inside the democratic international community. My point is if the democratic world have come, has come together on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Japan, South Korea have gone all the way, including Australia, to support Ukraine to repulse Russia on the behest and push of the United States. Why not Japan do something more and more at its back door inside Myanmar? Japanese behavior is not consistent. Why they support Ukraine on the word democracy and they close their eyes altogether on the question of democracy inside Myanmar. Japan also has to take some sort of a blame on that one. And Japan is a full-fledged democratic entity. They should pay more attention to the Southeast Asian scene next to their home instead of doing whatever the United States tell them to do. It's a, uh, what you call, not carrying out their responsibility to the ASEAN as their dialogue partner. And I think the biggest area where Japan has a lot of economic interests. See, so Japan is another one inside the group G7 or a friend of the European Union. We are in the position to do much, much more, but so far that has not happened because we have not started to talk to one another. So there must be a leader inside ASEAN somewhere that get the, the other eight ASEAN together to speak with one voice in a strong manner with uh, drastic concrete measures vis-a-vis -vis the military junta and at the same time support the NUG and go out to the world, to the UN, uh, to the UN General Assembly. Okay, speak to all the dialogue partners. Let's work together to put the military junta back into the barracks. So you, you mentioned Japan, and I find it interesting. I remember reading an analysis. I can't remember who, who wrote it. But the, the idea, the, the statement being made was that Japan, the United States, the European Union, Australia, a number of other countries were interested in putting pressure on the junta, but did not want to, as it was put, step on the toes of ASEAN and are, and are waiting to see ASEAN take a lead. Do you think that that is, is happening? Do you think ASEAN's hesitancy to be no, more firm that, on the junta is slowing? If then I think uh, they are all standing behind ASEAN with the accuses, uh, uh, with the excuses, this is ASEAN responsibility in order that each one of them and collectively will not do anything. Then they are not true to democracy. They are not true to themselves, themselves. And they are, what you call, not carrying out their global responsibility on democracy, human rights, and sense of decency. They have to work with ASEAN, not standing behind of ASEAN when they now know quite well that uh, there is a split inside ASEAN, there is disunity, 
and there is a lack of a common sense of purpose. So they have to come out on the front line to stand firm by themselves and speak to the Myanmar military authorities, or stand with ASEAN together and push for the realization of the five-point consensus with additional measures that I have mentioned towards the military junta and give recognition, diplomatic recognition to the NUG. That will be a big bargaining power to tell the military junta that they are no longer the supreme authority in Myanmar. That is an alternative. And this particular authoritative in the name of the NUG has now the backing of the international community and ASEAN as a whole. So I think, I mean, the insights you're offering are, are, are amazing. I think that what the question now becomes is what's happening behind closed doors in ASEAN? Because ASEAN, we've had, you know, a string of envoys. We have the five-point consensus. Um, and, and just recently we saw the announcement that uh, Myanmar would not receive the rotating uh, ASEAN presidential, presidential position. And instead it would be handed to the Philippines, I think in 2026. But how much time is ASEAN actually dedicating internally to discussing the crisis, to coming up with a plan for the crisis, and to actually carrying something out cohesively, and how much is is just sort of performative and delaying? I think if you are a gladiator in the Roman theater Colosseum of the past, you got to fight for your life. And now it's for the ASEAN to fight for human rights, for the Myanmar people, and for democracy as a whole. There is no more hesitancy. There is no more uh, passing the buck to the successive uh, chairmanship. ASEAN needs to get together. And I have just mentioned, there is a need now for one particular ASEAN leader to take the mantle of leadership and try to get every ASEAN to get on the same boat, speak with one voice, come with a set of measures to tell the military junta that you have no more to be in power. You have to relinquish power and give back democracy to Myanmar. So there, there must be that you know, inner strength, belief in righteousness, in democracy, in one or a group of ASEAN current leaders. It's never too late. It's only two years. Okay, maybe it sounds a long time for the Myanmar people, but there is still time for the ASEAN people to get lead uh, together. And there is no need, you know, to have uh, ASEAN summit, foreign minister meeting, which is going on at this point in time in Jakarta. We can work together 365 days a year, but we need someone to start the initiative and to keep on working every day you know, to put the five-point consensus or the five-point plus into place and tell the military junta that uh, we give you three months, six months to relinquish power or you can tell them to do according to the second point of, of the five-point consensus, namely to talk to the counterpart. We have been suggesting informally to the Indonesian government for Indonesia to, to host the all stakeholders meeting of the Myanmar forces and so on. Indonesia could invite 
the junta as well as the democratic opposition to the meeting in Jakarta. It could be a hybrid one, both online and uh, face-to-face because some of the Myanmar opposition leaders do not have travel document. Indonesia, together with the UN, can issue travel document and tell the Thai government to give the right of passage to come across the border for Myanmar or at the border to go through the airports of Thailand to get to Jakarta. So this is something that uh, that we all have to tell the new Thai government to cooperate and act accordingly. Mm. So the time is never too late. Give me the time, I will do it. But but you say it's never too late. The, The question is, is anyone within ASEAN actually doing this work yet or trying to get this work done yet? Well, I, I could tell you, I think, you know, because it still has been a confidential thing as yet, but okay. there is a move by an international NGO that has started to talk to me and to two former foreign ministers, one of Indonesia and one of Malaysia, whether the three of us could get together and act as a sort of a non-governmental entity to help the processes of the five-point consensus and to push the ASEAN governments to do more and also to send message across to the military junta. This is still in the making. But again, it is the undertaking of non-governmental people. I or my two former foreign minister colleagues are not in the government at the moment. So maybe we are in a sort of a neutral position to do that. That could be done. You know, or if not, ASEAN and Indonesia as the chair of of ASEAN still have a couple of months to go. They could do what we have been discussing so far. You know, also in taking up the real leadership and have another meeting, maybe starting with at the level of the permanent secretaries of the foreign office, the senior official meeting, which is a, a viable entity of ASEAN. And then we can have uh, more informal political meetings, not necessarily foreign minister, but I think senior members in the parliament of each of the ASEAN countries to get together and forge a common front and so on, to speak with one voice and to put more pressure on the military junta and reaching out to the democratic forces of Myanmar under the leadership or coordination of the national unity government. So many things can be done. What it needs is a sort of a vision, initiative, and the willpower to take a difficult work, to take up the challenges. But that's what we are, our politicians, is all about, to solve the problems. We are, we are politicians, whether in office or not in office. Our, our most task is to solve problems. So we have problems with Myanmar. We have problems within ASEAN. Let us solve the problem. There is no point in meeting and take a photo session and come out with beautiful worded statements that is has no value unless, unless they are turned into concrete action. So stop, you know, having this public relation exercise of having a meeting, photo session, come out with statement and, and nothing happened in that. We got to do the real work. Look at it as a matter of life and death for democracy, for human rights of ASEAN. Then there will be some sort of, I think, the aspiration, the ambition to solve problems, the crisis in Myanmar, as well as this, the lack of unity and cohesion 
inside the ASEAN community. So, okay, so you've, you've mentioned the National Unity Government quite a few times. And one thing that we've seen, uh, for example, in, in terms of the responses from the United States and, and the European Union, is that the rejection of the junta and the acceptance of the national unity government seem to be two very different things. A, a lot of international actors are happy to criticize the junta, condemn the junta, even potentially declare them to be illegitimate and criminal yeah. without also taking the other step of recognizing the national unity government. Why do you think there's been so much hesitation in, in recognizing the national unity government and legitimizing them? Well, I think it's the guts, the courage and the determination of the Japanese prime minister, the the Secretary of State of the United States, the Foreign Minister of Canada, the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of of of, uh, of uh, Australia and New Zealand, or even the President and the Foreign Minister of South Korea. You know, they are in the position to serve not only for their own nation but also for the common good of mankind. So a prime minister or foreign ministers in any of the democratic dialogue partners of ASEAN could do that. And we have proven that we could have done this together when I cited the example of we all getting together, ASEAN and the dialogue partners or democratic committees, when we together defeated the occupation of Vietnam in Cambodia set up the interim UN administration for Cambodia and brought back democracy to Cambodia after the civil war and the dominance of the Khmer Rouge. We have done that in the past. Why can't we do it again? And I think the issue is much less profound and sinister in Myanmar than in Cambodia of the past because there was large-scale genocide by the Khmer Rouge. And on top of that, in the modern history of the world, Vietnam has the audacity to occupy a neighboring country, threaten the sovereignty of Thailand, the frontline state of the free world, and the frontline state of the ASEAN community of the six at that time. But we collectively did succeed in defeating communism and repulse and got rid of Vietnam from Cambodia. And when there was the Nagri cyclone in Myanmar 10 years ago, ASEAN collectively was able to convince the military junta of Myanmar at the time to open the country for international humanitarian assistance and rehabilitation of Myanmar. It was a collective undertaking started with the collectiveness of ASEAN. And once we have the collectiveness of ASEAN and the political will, the international community, including the United Nations, did come along and work together in unison to help overcome the devastation of the Nikron uh, Nagris in Myanmar. So two things that we have done uh, together. And I could even venture to say that the controversy and the skirmishes between Cambodia and Thailand on account of the disputed area around the Hindu temple, Pravihan. ASEAN was of a collective will, you know, trying to pacify both Cambodia and Thailand. 
and Indonesia at that time was in the chair of ASEAN. Indonesia took the responsibility of bringing the matters to the attention of the UN Security Council that eventually led to the settlement at the International Court of Justice, the World Court. I led the Thai delegation to the UNSC meeting under the leadership and the liaison work of Indonesia in the chair of ASEAN. At that time, it was a very laudable act of leadership and concern for the commonality, common good of ASEAN on behalf of the Indonesian leadership at that time. Prime Minister, uh, the President Bambang Yoyo, and the Foreign Minister, uh, what you call, Nagakawa of Indonesia. And we also work a lot together in the solution to the East Timor question between East Timor and Indonesia. And now East Timor is going to become a full-fledged member of ASEAN. And there was now the reconciliation between Indonesia and East Timor. And ASEAN has very much had a role very much in the role. Thailand even sent a contingent of soldiers to help the peacekeeping operation in East Timor. So we have done a lot of things together in the past. Then why not we do the same thing on the Myanmar crisis? It needs the vision, the political will, and the collective determination to help solve. So it's within our abilities to be able to do that. And once we have the ASEAN collective position, I am very sure that members of the United Nations and the ASEAN dialogue partners will come around and work with us. So I think you, you bring up these examples. And one thing that strikes me as distinct when we look at East Timor, when we look at uh, the conflict between Vietnam and Cambodia, we were talking about governments that existed. Cambodia had its own government. It was just under occupation from Vietnam. The, the internal nature of the conflict in Myanmar seems to be giving a lot of people hesitation. And the national unity government has effectively had to establish itself from nothing uh, since the coup, which I would argue and many people have argued is, a, is an incredible achievement that um, has never really been uh, successfully performed before in human history. So it, it does seem that there is a lot of um, untested ground when it comes to recognizing the national unity government. Is there anything the national unity government, in your view, should be doing or could be doing? Okay, fine. I think two points first. You, you know that uh, hesitation is only an excuse of not doing anything. Mm. That, that is not acceptable. That's unbecoming. If Japan or the United States or members of the, UN, of the European Union or Australia or New Zealand believe in democracy and then they are democracy, there should not be hesitation to do what should be done. I don't need to be the prophet to tell them what to do. They know, but there is no political will. So the excuses have been forthcoming. But this is an ASEAN responsibility. We will back and so no, you come out on the forefront to say what you have to say to do what you have to do. There is no need for hesitation. Hesitation cannot be allowed. It's two years already. Okay, that's the first point. Everything, second point, everything sometimes has to start from nothing. But you have to have the will to solve the problem first. You can come with the excuses that we have no power to 
do anything to military junta. The NUG is only a sort of a shadow entity. They don't control any grounds inside uh, Myanmar. Then that's another excuses. But if you don't take all of these excuses for you to do nothing, but go right away in giving diplomatic recognition to NUG, then it's a beginning, a good beginning for things to come later. But to come with all the arguments of the negative side that it's not this and not that and so on, I think you are not a good politician, whether you are in the European Union, in North America, or in in the in the South Pacific uh, part uh, uh, of Australia and New Zealand and so on. You got to do something that uh, there was no precedence, but that is what human intelligence and the human goodwill is all about. You go into the dark that you do not sure that there is light at the tunnel, but there is a need you to go into the darkness, take up the challenges. You have to start from that point. You cannot come that I will go now because there is already light at the end of the tunnel. I, I, I don't condone all of this type of things. I think every politician, the diplomatic one, whether they are in North America or in Europe or in the Asia-Pacific region, is doing his work. Why, may I say in a bad language, why the hell do you become a politician? when you do not have the guts and determination to do what you believe, what is your inner soul, what is your idealism. You have to act accordingly. And you don't have, you don't have to go on with the excuses anymore. You can come out and say, because I am a liberal, because I am a democratic, I believe in human rights, and I have a human concern for the Myanmar people. Therefore, I will do this and that. That's it. But then, so the question... The way that I perceive this as a Westerner, and yes. I, f- I feel that this is something that, that pervades Western politics and political thinking, is this question of legitimacy. I completely agree with what you're saying. Yes. But I feel that many people within Western political establishments will look at the NUG, will say, yes, I want to support the NUG. Yes. But then they will ask the question, what if it backfires? Does the NUG have legitimacy? Can I justify my move five years, 10 years down the line, do I have the legitimacy to declare them to be the government of Myanmar? And I think that's what they're afraid of. They want someone else to give yeah, them yeah. the legitimacy. But surely they will know this sentence, that NUG is the result of the defunct demise of democracy, which came as a, from the hands of the junta. You, you need any more explanation as a democratic politician? So in that sense, you have to go and support the NUG for whatever entity that was denied democratic right to rule the country. Is there any more proof? Because the results of the general elections on the, I think, 10 November 2021 had said so in black and white that there was the overwhelming victory by the NLD party under the leadership of Aung San Suu Kyi. And when the parliament was about to be convened on the 1st of February 2022, the military moved, took over the power, dissolved the parliament, imprisoned all the major political figures, members of MPs that was to be coming to the parliament, imprisoned all all of them together and set up a kangaroo court 
to bring more years of imprisonment to Aung San Suu Kyi and her entourage or her colleagues and so on. It's so blatant. On top of this, uh, what you call 24,000 political prisoners, isn't there enough evidence already for the Western world, the so-called democratic Western world to still have the hesitation and to keep on looking for more excuses of not doing anything. Then don't come and tell us that you are democratic. Don't come and tell us that we would like to promote democracy around the world. Where are all the Bushes of this world? Where are all the Obamas of this world? All disappeared. Where are all the fighters of Europe that came out against fascist Hitler or communist Stalin? All disappeared? They all have died? Or they still exist? But in fear of trying to do a good things? No, I think you, you can't. You have to go to where the possibilities are. And one of the possibilities is to stretch out the hands to the NUG and see what happened. But it would be a great message to the junta that they are now not the sole unitary power of Myanmar. That is the other entity that is recognized by the democratic international community. Let's work one step at a time. Mm. So how do you appraise the performance of the national unity government as a government uh, thus far? Obviously, the circumstances are very unique and they've only had about two years to establish themselves. But how do you see their performance? Uh, okay, I'll be very frank. And also mm. my apologies in advance to members of the NUG, the, the, the cabinet. Uh, I think they're quite amateurish and quite idealistic, but not realistic. And I have been telling them directly and indirectly, and I have said this to to, to many of the uh, NGOs, whether the Kareni, Kareni NGOs or the Shan NGOs, some of the politicians from the ethnic minority states, as well as to many of the democratic uh, activists of Myanmar living at the Mesot on the Thai-Myanmar border, also up in the Chiang Mai uh, province in the northern part of Thailand. I said that the NUG need a set of leadership that is visible. So the, what the NUG need is a face that proclaims and accepted by the democratic forces to be the spokesperson, the voice, the face of the democratic opposition forces. And I, having said that, then I mentioned the name of Fidel Castro. I mentioned Mao Zedong and Juan Lai 70, 80 years ago, or even Chiang Kai-shek of Taiwan, of the KMT. And lately, about Lex Walesa uh, of Poland, they all started from nothing, or even to Ho Chi Minh at that time in struggle for independence against the French colonialism. Or even General Aung San, the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, when they started a small group, they don't know what would be the future, but there are all the dangers. But there was a phase. And in the case of Indonesia, 
we could not never to forget the name of Sukarno and the rest of the independent leadership of Indonesia all started from a few names, a few hands, but with a face. But NUG so far has failed in agreeing among themselves who is the leader. And they should stop dreaming about Aung San Suu Kyi becoming a leader again. Her time has passed and she is imprisoned. They have to extract, disentangle themselves from the aura of Aung San Suu Kyi, who had failed as the leader of democratic Myanmar by accommodating and being accomplished and appeasement to the military junta, especially on the case of the atrocity inflicted on the Muslim minorities, the Rohingyas, and some of the minorities, uh, people like the Chin, the Kachin, the Kareni, the Karen or some of the Shans. So there is a need for a face, for a leadership that could speak strongly on behalf of all the democratic forces. And then they should stop, you know, attending too many panels and having representatives going to Brussels, to various capitals and so on. Just work from where they are through the online and tell the world community, what are they thinking? There have been so much talks, has been so much talk about the new federal democratic Myanmar. Where is the draft constitution? What are the principles of the new federal democratic Myanmar? Tell the world. And it must be within the framework of the word inclusiveness, including the Rohingyas. And every citizen of Myanmar has the same footing. There must be an end to the Burmanization of Myanmar. And Aung San Suu Kyi, if she could speak out, she would also say that no more Burmanization of Myanmar, which has been a total failure since Myanmar regained independence from the British colonial rule. No more dominance by one ethnic group over the rest of the ethnic minorities and so on. Speak it out clearly that this is the position. And at the same time, each of the minority states, the Mon, the Karen, the Kareni, the Shan, or the Wa, the Chin, the Kachin, the Arakans, have to quickly build up the nation state entity to be part of the new federal and democratic Myanmar. So state building in each of the ethnic states is very, very important. And at the same time, the international community could help in the nation state building of the ethnic state. And at the same time, to be ready to help build the federal democratic Myanmar, a nation state in a sort of a bigger framework. And many of the Democratic countries like Germany, Canada, United States have had experiences on federalism. They can share the experience, they can advise, they can recommend or even work with the drafter, the set of drafters of the new Myanmar 
federal and democratic constitution, or even to help lay out the administrative framework on how to set up the federal country, like I think the provinces of Canada or the state of the United States. So many examples are already available. Or even to study the setup of Australia, again, which is as a federal entity, comprising many provinces like a state and so on. But, but what do you think of the federal uh, democracy charter that, that has already been released in two parts by the NUG? I, I am okay with the first part. And then I did write a personal suggested preamble, which I have tabled to many of the Burmese friends that I think uh, the the constitution should have a preamble, like the U.S. preamble, uh, the constitution preamble, setting all the major principles first in the preamble. Then the detail of the con- constitution can, can follow. Second, I am not quite comfortable with the chapter two about crimes and punishment, that uh, there is an intention to bring all the military generals and captains and colonels of the Tatmandaw to the Court of Justice. I think we are Asians. We do not have the Western concept of crime and punishment. We are mostly Buddhists. Is the forgiveness should be the name of the game and reconciliation. But concurrently, of course, they should get some punishment or they should be denied any future political activities or position in the government. Then at the same time, there must be a fund to be set up with the help of the international community to do the compensations to all the affected families, including the families of the soldiers, that most of them were being ordered by their generals to go and kill people. But their families suffered. Like everyone else, they should also be compensated. So there could be some sort of uh, appropriate punishment, but not to the death penalty. We are Buddhists. Second, they should not be allowed to come back to the service of the government. And we could look at the integration of East Germany and West Germany. Very few leaders of East Germany went to court. But most of the East German bureaucrats, politicians and so on, went free. But they were not allowed to participate in the government activities until death do part them. So we could learn from the German example of the German unifications in the course of the 1989 onwards. And had, it has been a very successful story of reconciliation and integration and the equalization or the upgrading of the life and the infrastructure in East Germany to the level of West Germany. Mm. And so you you also spoke about the need for charismatic leadership yes and as as Ansan Suchi continues to be a symbolic figurehead yes. we do have a couple of figures um at the moment i think uh Dozi Ma'an is taking a very sort of dominant role mm-hmm. previously dr sasa was in a spokesman position yes. uh, currently i think nepon lat is taking uh, yes. taking over that role yes. uh Mon as defense minister and so on a couple yes. of these Yes. Members of the NUG have really tried to take on this this uh, face of the de- democratic movement. Right. How do you think they are performing in this role? I, I think they have first they have to cut off themselves from the aura of Aung San Suu Kyi. 
and we all must tell Aung San Suu Kyi that she can retire from politics because her leadership of the past five years before the coup d'etat was a total failure, at least from the eyes of the international community. So there should not be any more nostalgia about the coming back into politics of Aung San Suu Kyi. Second, to dispel altogether with the myth of the convincibility and the permanency of Aung San Suu Kyi. Myanmar has to start anew with a new set of leadership. And I think the names that you have mentioned is, for me is okay. Or even the current president of, or prime minister of NUG, the gentleman from the Chin state, isn't it? Also could Kachin, take up. So, Kachin, yeah. so the five, six of them can, can, conform, can form a sort of a consortium. You know, uh, a consortium of leadership and one of them should should be the chair or they could have a rotating chair like the Prime Ministership of Switzerland, which uh, mm -hmm. rotates every year, you know. So you can do that, but the five of them should be the faces of the democratic Myanmar. I am for it 1000% and the five of them must come out and speak more in unison to the, to the Myanmar people and to the international community and to start speaking with one voice to the ASEAN chair and to each of the ASEAN government. That's what they have to do. It's, it's almost two years now. It's about time that they emerge and come out into the open and say that we are leading and we have the consensus from the Burman majority, from the Arakan, from the Rohingya, from the Chin, from the Kachin, from the Wa, from the Kokang, from the Mon, from the Chan, from the Karen, Kareni, Kayaks, and so on, or from the Chan. Get that consensus and come out. Don't stand behind the curtain anymore. And we and tell to the world that we are going to take the responsibility of leadership. Be not only visible by online facilities, but physically, they have to risk their life a bit because they might be hunted down and assassinated by the intelligence unit and the assassin group of the Myanmar military uh, uh, junta that might go to the Thai-Myanmar border or come across into Thailand and find to find them out and kill them. You know, they have to take the risk of their life because there is a noble thing called service to the country and to the people. So their life is secondary because this is a very crucial time for them to take the mantle of leadership and take the risk even to their physical well-being, to their life and so on. So ultimately, looking at the National Unity Government, you clearly have a lot of recommendations, and I agree with the recommendations. I, I can say from personal knowledge and personal experience that there are many people within the National Unity Government who would also agree with everything that you've just said. My question to you is, do you believe that the National Unity Government has the resources and the means and the expertise to implement what you are suggesting internally? Or should the National Unity Government be looking externally for assistance? Uh, I think they have limited resources, and that is understandable. It's very natural indeed. So whatever resources, they have to really look at it. But with this set of resources, human as well as financial, what can they do? Okay, tell us the world. Second, once they, there is a set of leadership, 
then you reach out to the international community. And my organization, which I represent, the ASEAN Parliamentarian for Human Rights, APHR, would be more than willing to be a sort of a small spokesperson and to do the liaison work from the NUG leadership to the international community. Because we have fellow parliamentarians, current and former, all around the world, not only in Asia-Pacific, but in the African continent and in Latin America. So we can reach out to them. We have uh, met with the European Parliament. We met with the U.S. Congress. We even went to the U.N., met some of the senior officials and so on. So we already have some sort of a linkage to various entities around the world. And once we have something quite solid and definite in terms of the leadership, in terms of the contents of what they want to do for the new Myanmar, then we would be in the position to help inform the world and get the world support. Excellent. Um, so I think I think we've covered a, a very broad array of, of topics and, and hopefully the people who hear this will be able to, to take action and, and try to implement positive change to, to end the crisis in Myanmar. I think the odds against our joint undertaking, the democratic Myanmar people and us, the international community that believe in democracy and human rights, the, the odds are very much against us. But there is a larger undertaking that we have to overcome the odds and try to meet the odds as much as we can. So that, that we have to have that determination and the guts and the will and not to be disheartened and uh, given up or to do things half, in a sort of half-attempted uh, manner. You have to have the self-belief that in spite of the odds, we can overcome the odds and bring back democracy into Myanmar. You have to have that self-belief. So my only message or my only humble suggestion is that let's have the self-belief that we can overcome. And one good thing about Martin Luther and his great speech in Washington, D.C., I think 1963, we shall overcome. And I think the plight of the colored people in America, in spite of the difficulties, have has improved throughout the years. Starting from the point of enslavement, slavery, to the civil war, to the fight for equality at the ballot box, and for the black people, even to have a president in the name of Barack Obama. That's a great achievement. Of course, there are still many odds or many challenges still going on about being treated as a sort of a second class citizens. But the fight must go on. But the fight that has been undertaken for many decades so far has achieved a lot of tremendous results. And when we speak of Obama, one could also recall the faces of uh, Colin Powell, the general, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, or even to Condoleezza Rice, same thing, a black woman. So, one, 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 that, that there are examples around the world. You have to start from somewhere with so many odds against you, but the cause is a noble one for freedom for democracy, 
for the realization of all aspect of human life. We we cannot give up it, and it is is Myanmar belongs to the Myanmar people, and Myanmar is yours. You cannot have any entity or any group of people to destroy your country. You got to fight for it and overcome. We have to keep on trying and become and stronger, and gain the international community as much as possible. Authoritarianism, from my point of view, is a short-term entity. Fascist Hitler, Franco, far right in Spain, far right in Portugal, Stalinism, and so on. Okay, they might reign for a couple of years, but at the end of the day, they were defeated because the will of the Russian people. Or the Chinese people, or the Cuban people, or the Spanish people, is never cease the will to go on for the betterment of life. For a life under an open society is something very noble indeed, and it is the right for everyone to have that in their position and in the conduct of their everyday life. So please don't give up. Have yourself believe. And I think we in the international community in the ASEAN, maybe small in number, but we'll keep on helping and hope to be able to expand the network of support and to be your voice in the international community everywhere and all the time as much as possible. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. As regular listeners are aware, we often remind our audience about our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, at the end of a show. Truth be told, fundraising is hard work, and I can personally attest to the fact that it's really no fun to keep asking for contributions. Yet the situation on the ground now in Myanmar is so distressing that we continue to do so on behalf of the Burmese people. What is most helpful at this time are recurring donations. Which help alleviate both the stress and time involved in fundraising. If you are able to pledge a certain amount per month, our team can plan around having at least a consistent minimum amount to work within each month. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement (CDM), families of deceased victims, internally displaced person (IDP) camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. 
Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause in both websites except credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan, da, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, ba, da, ba, yaranan.